Hello guys, this is Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm Alex Ballinger. So before we get started, don't forget you can download us on Apple Podcasts. You can also rate and review us there as well. And you can get us on Twitter at IBL Podcast and you can speak to me personally at AMB Hack. We've got another great show for you this week. So to start off with, we're going to be talking to political reporter Esme Ashcroft. She has been talking exclusively to the mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, because he is halfway through his political term in office now. And she's been discussing with him exactly what he's done and what his plans are. He's probably got the least enviable job in Bristol, I would argue. So it's going to be really fascinating to hear more about what he says about his time in office and his remaining time left as well. Then we're also going to be talking to our education reporter, Michael Yong. Now, he's been taking part in a landmark project that's taking place across the country that aims to track the number of homeless people dying on our streets. It's a really hard-hitting topic, but Michael's coverage of homelessness has been fantastic. He also volunteers with some homeless organisations as well. So we're going to be finding out exactly what the point of this new project is and what it means to him personally. And lastly, we're going to be talking to reporter Joe Smith, who has been working on a really big health story that has been breaking today as we speak. So we'll find out more about that as well. Okay, so let's jump into our first conversation with our political reporter, Esme Ashcroft. Right, so as this week is the halfway point of Mayor Marvin Rees' term in office, and you have been chatting to him, probably got the least enviable job in Bristol, potentially? I would say so. It's hard. Love him or hate him. He does a tough job. And it's obviously not a walk in the park being interviewed by yourself either. Oh, yeah. How was he sort of mood wise and sort of taking a grill in from you? How did he how did he find it, do you think? Do you know what? I think he was fairly open and amiable to me. We met on, when was it? It was a Thursday morning. He was fairly fresh. You know, I think he expects this level of scrutiny and especially coming up to the halfway point, he was in a position where he wanted to put his message across too. Because being the political reporter for Bristol Live, you have to have quite a strange relationship with the politicians around us, I think, don't you? You have to sort of be on speaking terms, but not too friendly so as you're not holding them to account. How do you find that you balance that yourself? You know, I think it's hard, but I think at the end of the day, everyone is aware what the kind of the game is and what the rules are. As much as I need to speak with the politicians uh, to get stories and their take on on events, they also need the press to put forward their agendas and manifestos and things like that. So, yes, I say it's an uncomfortable, comfortable working relationship. So talking about Marvin's two years, it's quite a good point for him to reflect on what he's done, but also talk about what he plans to do. What does he think about what's happened so far? So he was very positive about his first two years. He says that he's spent a lot of time building the foundations. Foundations was a term used fairly frequently. Um, he said he was not aware or he was very surprised at the state of the authority when he gained office and has spent the first two years really putting down the foundations to try and make it better and uh, you know more effective. And now he's saying these next two years are going to be about the delivery of big projects such as metro bus, the arena and other transport issues. Do you think that he has been frustrated in his first two years with what he's been able to do then based on the sort of state of the finances of the council when he arrived? I, I think so, definitely. I think he's played a very clever game, though, in terms that we had some huge cuts in years one and two. And I'm talking across pretty much all frontline services, libraries, parks, you know, you name it, we've had cuts to it. Genuinely, because of the situation, the financial situation he inherited. 
But obviously now he's thinking these next two years, if you look forward at their projected finance plans, the much smaller cuts and mainly to kind of back-end services, non-headline grabbing ones. So I think he's hoping that by re-election in 2020, people will have forgotten about those initial cuts. To rip the plaster off quickly, basically. Yes, yeah. definitely, definitely. So were there any sort of key projects of his first two years that he was really pleased with that he brought up with you? Housing was a big one. I mean, I think a real key to his initial election manifesto was, I will build 2,000 homes by 2020 um, with 800 affordable. And I think they are well on track to doing that. I have to say there was an initial quibble because in one of the posters it says 2,000 homes a year. But Marvin says, no, it was 2,000 homes by 2020. And, you know, the council's in the process of setting up a housing delivery company. So I think housing has been a real win for him. So talking about the state of the council that he inherited, basically, based on your analysis, your time covering Bristol City Council, should he have been surprised by the state it was in? Or was it sort of signposted before he took office, do you think? I think there were whispers. And I think people were starting to say, you know, there, there are some issues, but I don't think we had any concrete proof. Um, when he came in, he launched the Bundred report, which took a real kind of look at everything which was happening. And um, and it came back and it was fairly critical of the processes. And obviously there was that missing 30 million from the uh, green capital accounts. So that was all looked into. And yeah, since then, I think he's tried his best or he says he's tried his best to right those wrongs. Initially, he can lay the blame at the previous administration. He can say, you know, well, I've inherited these these issues. But now I think we're getting to the point where he has to start taking responsibility for issues which he is creating or problems in the council which have come under his watch. So I think it's quite a, a crucial time for him in that respect. And in terms of laying the foundations and staffing changes at the council, things like that, have we seen that come through as well? Is that something that we've oh, seen? Oh, yeah, we've seen a really high turnover of senior staff. There's been a whole issue with the chief executives. I mean, we're about to have a, we've had three since he his administration started and we've now undergone a structural change to the top of the council. So there are some serious questions about the processes which which took place under that. And, you know, I think we could do a whole other podcast on that one. <laughs> so as much as Marvin is seems to be happy with how his term is going, there are serious questions being raised by opposition councillors and leaders. There were also some allegations of bullying within the council that Marvin raised when in your talk with him, weren't there as well? Has he been working to tackle those as well? Yeah, I mean, this was raised in the Bundred Review, issues with bullying and also financial mismanagement, councillors not being informed enough about the finances of the council. And he said, you know, he's he's working to or has cleared all of that out. So he's he's happy with how that's going, I think. So that's his first two years in office. He's got two more years left. What does he want to do for the next two years? Well, he said the next two years are about delivery. He's saying Metro bus phase one will be finished, which, you know, just to put a brackets around that, that wasn't a scheme which he launched that, you know, dates back to previous administrations. So yes, it might be finished, but Perhaps he shouldn't be taking credit for that. It's another one of these problems yeah. that he's had to inherit, <laughs> it's basically. It's a legacy. Yeah. Um, we will get much further with housing. We will significantly have a location for the arena and spades will be put in the ground. Also, further along the road with the underground project, which is something he has launched. So, you know, he has ambitions there. But I would say that um, 
I spoke with the other party leaders and they just gave some incredibly savage responses to how what their assessment of his first two years have been. If I can read you out some of the things. Please because, do. Wow, I'll read you one from each party. There you go. Then we're being fair. fair. We're being fair then. The Tory group leader, Mark Weston, says, To date, I find it hard to point to anything tangible that has been done to improve the lives of residents in the city under Marvin's watch. Let's go to the Greens. Um, And this is Ellen McCumley, Green leader. I was told by the previous mayor's advice to Marvin Rees was, if you want to be popular, never do anything. I can only assume from the last two years that this Labour mayor really wants to be popular. Pretty savage. Mm. And then perhaps the most critical of all, the Lib Dem leader, Gary Hopkins. The tension can be quite palpable sometimes in council meetings between the pair. The incompetence and arrogance of the decisions regarding libraries, parks and local democracy have been breathtaking. And the hokey-cokey over the arena, with the majority of his own councillors voting against him, has been a classic. So not mincing their words there. Not at all. By any means. Those are coming from opposition parties, obviously. To what extent do you think that they need to be taken with a pinch of salt as well? And what extent do you oh, think that they definitely. are fairly legitimate? Definitely. We're, we're two years from an election now and it's going to start to ramp up. We're going to start to have candidates coming out from other parties who will be challenging Marvin. So yes, I'm, you always have to take comments from opposition parties with a pinch of salt and just be aware that they will have an agenda too. But I think underneath it, there are some real concerns cross parties. So looking to the next election in 2020 then, it might not be a huge shock to anyone, but Marvin is looking to stand again. Yes. What is he looking to do for that, do you think? What are his aims for 2020? Well, he told me that the ticket that he'll be running on will be one of proven delivery. So he wants to be able to say, look at these things which I've done in my first four years. Now, politically, a lot has changed since 2016. You know, we've had Brexit. We've got a new administration kind of above the city mayor. So we've got Wecker. You know, so much. There's been a real kind of shift change, to use that term, in politics and democracy. So I think we will be looking at a very different election. And it will be very interesting to see how the parties come together and create their manifestos around that. So now that Marvin is looking to 2020, he's talking about delivering, how key are some of those policies that he's brought up going to be in his re-election, do you think? Is there a chance the electorate could remember some of these pledges, not see see if they haven't come about and then maybe go to a different party? Oh, definitely. I think, I mean, even from just our perspective as a paper, we have the manifestos which were put out in 2016. So undoubtedly we will be, you know, cross-analyzing them and putting them against each other to see what has or hasn't been achieved and equally I think with any kind of anyone who's running for political office there will just be a huge amount of scrutiny placed on pledges and promises so it's going to be massive. So in your sit down with Marvin then what were your sort of aims going into it what was your interviewing technique and what did you hope to take from the conversation? Oh my interviewing technique (laughs) I, I genuinely wanted to find out what he how he felt the first two years have gone and how, what he wanted for the second two years. In terms of technique, I don't go in, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I go in like full Paxman. I don't ask the same question over and over again if I don't get the response I like. I think it was it was more of a conversational tone. Of course, you have to challenge him and be aware that there will be things that he wants to get across. But uh, yeah, it was fairly, 
amiable. Did you have to do some research in order to make sure that you could hold him to account then as well? Because you have to fact check him there and then, I suppose. Sure, sure. I mean, to be honest, I'm writing about these things day in, day out. So a lot of the figures kind of stay in your head. And you can certainly remember when promises were made and things like that. But yeah, I did go in with his initial manifesto pledges from 2016 and tick them off as we went along, so to speak. So you're going to be keeping an eye on him for two years then? Oh, yeah. All of them. I'm always watching. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ez. <laughs> that was great stuff there from Ez. Thank you to her for having a chat with me. Now we're going to jump straight into our next story, which is with our education reporter, Michael Yong, who has been working with a national organisation to track the number of homeless people that die on our streets. Let's hear from him now. We're going to be talking about homelessness this week and your work covering homelessness mm-hmm. in Bristol. Tell us a little bit about your own personal involvement, because I understand that you volunteer with some homeless organisations as well. Um, I do. It is a course that I got involved with homelessness since I was in Cheltenham. So I used to work in Cheltenham as a reporter. Um, I decided there was one Christmas um, I got sent to cover a homeless shelter, really touched by what I saw and thought, I've got to get involved. You know, I've got to more than just report every Christmas. Um, so I started volunteering with a few groups. I was in up in Gloucestershire, came down in Bristol and did something very similar here. Moved about different groups because I wanted to see major charities at work, but I wanted to see what the volunteer groups were like. And to be fair, there are about a dozen in Bristol that I know of, of just volunteers. They're, they're not official charities. They just volunteer and, you know, they go out, they meet people, they talk to them or give them food, clothes, it's just wonderful. So, yeah. So, thought I'd get involved. So, yeah. Have you really seen the human side to homelessness as well? Because I think people can walk down the street and it's quite easy to ignore people or find them a nuisance. But your coverage particularly really reflects the human side. Is that something that you think you've picked up through through your work? Hopefully. Uh, hopefully that's what people would say. That it's not just stats and numbers. Because the last thing we want to do is just talk about government reports, council reports, accounting how many homeless people because they're not just these number of sort of homeless rough sleepers they're they're, they're so much more than that they're they're people they've got individual stories uh, and that's important yeah we were talking about this in the office recently but do you feel that there is a bit of a a shortage of homelessness coverage from some news organisations sort of elsewhere around the country do they find it quite difficult to get in with those stories that you find yeah so you know this obviously brings me to the point where a story we've done this week and we've launched this week to look at Counting the number of homeless people that have died on our streets. And it sounds very grim, but actually when you look at the stories we've done about those deaths, we've had an incredible response, positive response. You know, people like Punk Paul, people like Michael Angel, uh, homeless men I knew very well who died, sadly. It's just painting a picture of them. So this new project called Dying Homeless by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and ourselves, it's going to work nationwide and what they do is they start looking at press reports of homeless people who died sadly looking at the database it is sorely lacking in many places so major cities and some smaller cities where this happens there is a professor in Brighton who is absolutely superb who did a a, his own research really into the number of homeless people who died and it's just you know it's probably getting to the point where local papers are picking up that this is no longer a no longer just a numbers game. This is this is so much more than that. I think local papers are picking up on that. You know, hopefully some national papers as well. Yeah. So what is the difficulty with 
getting the numbers of homeless people that die on our streets then? Because I understand that there are official figures from the council, mm -hmm. but basically they're wrong. So what is the difficulty with getting the numbers accurate? Yeah, I mean, I would dispute the figures from the uh, council. They work within limits, which obviously every count has to have limits. It's very important. You've got parameters around what you're counting. But at the moment, the council, as of 2017, has got four people who have died in Bristol. I know five and and two of them I knew well uh, and the other three confirmed by the council. So on one hand, the council is saying we've got four people who died on our streets. I know of at least five. So my question is how many more do we not know of? So starting from this year and starting especially from this week, we're going to start looking at this in such depth that we'll go to inquest of people who are registered as having no fixed abode. We're going to go to any time we get it, we get a wind of somebody who's died, we'll try and confirm it. And uh, we have to make sure everything's official. But more than that, you know, if we get to speak to their friends, their family, that would be incredible because, you know, we want to hear what happened to them. How did it end up on the streets? How did it end up on the sofa of a friend? How did it end up homeless? So it's not just rough sleepers. Uh, that much is important. Uh, a lot of people think homelessness is something that they might be very far removed from. The truth is homelessness could happen to anyone. Three paychecks, that's what we say. But, uh, and it's not untrue in Bristol especially. But when you look at the numbers we have, those are the ones we know of. And it's growing at such a rate that it's actually exponential. And you can find that, obviously, I can't give you numbers offhand, but uh, you can find it on the website where I've done a graph where you just see since 2009, it has doubled, it has tripled. The number of rough sleepers have gone up 800%. And that's not, you know, that's not nice to hear. Why is it so hard to get the accurate figures for how many homeless people there are living on our streets then? Because nobody keeps records of it. The council's streetwise team uh, that w works with antisocial behaviour but evidently sees a lot of homeless people. They're just three people. The volunteers who go out with a charity to do the annual rough sleeping count, they mostly stick to the city centre. They might not go into the squats. There aren't that many of them and they do it once a year in the autumn where, you know, we know it's the easiest time to be a rough sleeper. Summer is difficult, winter is difficult. We know the autumn is easier. It's not easy, easier. So um, it's difficult for anyone to keep count of it. Uh, and hopefully what we're doing here is not to use it as a stick to sort of bash the council or bash the government. Uh, you know, it's got a higher purpose than that. It's more important than that. It's telling the stories of the people who who would otherwise never get have their stories told. So we're involved with this project, Die and Homeless, with the uh, Bureau of Investigative Journalism. What does that mean when we get an accurate picture or more accurate picture of how many homeless people are on the streets? And what can we do with that information as well? How can that help? I mean, that's a great question. That's the whole purpose of this project is to hopefully chart patterns and start looking at whether services are working, whether austerity is working, whether putting more funds into, say, alcohol and drugs misuse. It's more important than putting it in another part of homelessness work. So if, if you think about a charity and they've got this amount of money, say they've got £100 to work with, the question is, do I give £90 to drugs and substance misuse or do I and, and then give £10 to mental health support or do I give £30 to mental health support and £70 to drugs and substance misuse hopefully this will help with that picture it's going to take a few years it's going to take more than just me uh, it's going to 
hopefully every local paper in the country on board and we would just have you know statistics and stories uh, personal stories of people who have died so I think it's a great thing for us to get involved with but you know I, you do to get some flack for it because people are not used to you doing this but <laughs> every good thing starts from somewhere so yeah so this has come at quite a quite a poignant time as well because you've just spent the day in Avon Coroner's Court mm. and we were speaking in last week's episode of the podcast to Alex Wood who was talking about his experiences covering inquests and particularly talking to families of people that have been bereaved. Today for you I imagine must have been a completely different set of circumstances because these were three inquests for homeless people mm-hmm. assumingly with no family attending. Well we, we had no family per se uh, we had friends for, for one of them. Unfortunately, you're right, you know, the, the whole idea today, by coincidence or planning, by the court, not by us, there were the inquest of three people who have died on our streets. Very sad um, to give you a brief overview. The first one was a, a man called Adam Sajak who died um, outside Debenhams. Loads of people have seen this because it was uh, about 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, on a busy Monday. Um, then you had a, a guy called Philip Luce, he died sadly in the woods. No family, no way of tracing family, no way of even tracing him because he died such a long time ago. It's almost as if nobody cared about him. And that's a very sad way to go. And he was 69. So he lived a life where hopefully he knew people. And then the final one was a uh, very sad, saddest one that well, hopefully uh, that will come out soon is this, this man who died just yards away from a night shelter when the storms hit Bristol and there were evidence of strong evidence of starvation, strong evidence of uh, long-term alcohol misuse. Um, although he had tried to stop drinking because you know it was it was clear in the toxicity level it wasn't that bad. It wasn't what killed him, but but it was just difficult to hear that he he was sleeping in the rain. He was drenched right through. He was just yards away from a night shelter, which was open, and he. Was, he was starving for such, you know, for a few years it was apparently. So it, it, that that really that's really difficult to hear. I got asked yesterday why we cover stories about homelessness and you know how, how big of Bristol's population is homeless. Now that's that's the main point why we do these stories. It's not to talk to homeless people about homelessness because they know what homelessness is. It's to tell everyone else who don't know about homelessness what homelessness is, and that would be ninety nine point. Eight percent, I would say, ninety nine point nine percent of Bristol's population. So, hopefully, that's what we're doing. Those stories that you've picked up from the inquest—they mm. really do hammer home how important this project is. I think, isn't it as well? Because we're going to be looking at the numbers, but also we're going to be looking at the names and the people behind it, and also the circumstances, which is a really key part of this whole project. I think, isn't it? Is numbers, but also stories as well that we're mm. going to keep telling. Absolutely. So, people like Philip uh, Loose. He would not have been on a council register on their known outreach. So he's not going to be one of those that the council thinks has died, sadly. <laughs> and um, I don't know if this other guy, his name is uh, Jean-Louis Duplassis. I'm going to forgive my, uh, if I'm saying it wrong. It's but better than I would have done it. Yeah, um, he, you know, it's not known if he was known to the council, but he's been living in St. Paul's for many, many years. I know him. I know him as O'Malley, funny enough. You know, O'Malley was in, he's been in Bristol for a long time. And, and, but the thing is, 
I don't know if the council knows of him. So are they going to register his death? I am. So that's that's the point there, really. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would be really keen to help out homeless people, but are kind of not sure how to do it or they're nervous. As yeah. someone that has made that jump from wanting to do it to doing it, what would you say to anyone that really wanted to help out or wanted to learn more about homeless people? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's hugely important. But hopefully what we do is, is what we've seen actually is just this huge wave of sympathy and understanding towards homelessness. I, I thought when I started writing about homelessness about 18 months ago, that, uh, you know, initially we got a lot of flack for it and we still get a lot of flack for it and criticisms and we're all learning. But what we've seen is a huge rush of sympathy and people volunteering. So if you want to try a few charities, um, there are several charities to do walks around Bristol. You've got Feet Homeless, uh, a charity that I know very well. Uh, you've got um, a group called Help Homeless Bristol. They all sound about the same. You can find them all on Facebook. Please get involved with them. There's, there's Bristol Outreach uh, and Support for the Homeless. Then you've got outreach programmes uh, like Jasper Thompson's that is called Help the Homeless Bristol. And they do containers for homeless people. You can go and help out, you know, build a container, build a home. It, it only takes a couple of men hours. And it's just an incredible thing just to see it happen. They do outreach as well. Or, obviously, there are the bigger charities. The Julian Trust Night Shelter, absolutely fantastic charity. St Mungo's, uh, you know, it runs the Compass Centre. And, and you've got Shelter, if you want to learn about the legal side of housing. You've got Crisis, if you want to learn about uh, what homelessness, what causes homelessness. And so we've got loads of charities that, uh, you know, mind if you want to help with mental health services. And... You've got loads of services out there, loads of charities that you can go and give your time to. That's the most important thing. A lot of people ask me if I should give homeless people money. That's a difficult question. Whether you give somebody money or not is your choice. You should not be judged for it. You should not be judged if you do give money and you should not be judged if you don't give money. What I can say is I would say the most important thing you can give to somebody is your time. And if you have nothing, just stop and have a chat. That That is such an important part of like human life. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I would second that as well. There's been times when I've gone out for stories to speak to homeless people, particularly mm. during the snow earlier this year. I went to speak to homeless people to find out what it was like to to live in the snow like that, you know, to be outside during the snow. And while it may seem like a nerve-wracking thing to do, everyone I spoke to was friendly. They were lovely. Mm. They just were, they wanted to talk, you know, they were happy to share their experiences and let you know you know, what it was like, but also for the, for the company as well. Yeah, but it's really important as well to say, to say this, uh, you know, I thought I should say this, it's, it's the way we report it. You know, it's not just me, but, you know, obviously all of you guys, uh, all my colleagues, do. there is a real sympathy to it and a real understanding and compassion towards homelessness, which, you know, I'm very proud to see this newsroom actually do that. It's just an incredible thing to work among reporters who understand that. Sometimes we can demonise homeless people or dehumanise them. I like to think that, you know, hopefully the Bristol Poser, Bristol Life, as we now call, um, uh, we're better than that. So, yeah. Michael, thank you for your time and keep up the good work. Thank you. It's a really tricky topic that we've been tackling there with Michael. So thanks so much to him for doing that great work and for talking to us about it as well. We're going to jump into our final conversation with reporter Joe Smith, who has been looking at a really interesting council health scandal that has been breaking as we record. So let's find out more about that now. 
So, Joe, you are looking into a story that is extremely current as it's still going on. You're working on it as we speak. I've dragged you away from your computer where you were waiting for a response on this. Just talk us through briefly what you've been looking into. Yes, I got an email about 10 minutes ago about this. So it is unfolding as we speak. This is a story that I started covering last week. Yeah. End of April. End of April. This is Allied Healthcare. They are one of the biggest care providers in the country. I saw an article in The Guardian on the 20th of February saying that basically Allied Healthcare, which provides home visits to 13,000 people up and down the country, was in trouble. It's warned, In financial trouble. In financial trouble, mm-hmm. yes. It's saying it could go bust without help from its creditors. So I had a look around and see if uh, Allied Healthcare looked after anybody in the Bristol area. And it turns out they have a contract with South Gloucestershire Council. It's called domiciliary care. It's where carers stay overnight in people's homes and look after them. So are we talking about elderly people? Elderly people, vulnerable people, yeah. Anyone that would need care in the community at their home, basically. That's that's yeah. right, okay. yeah. As I looked into this, I was surprised to find that South Gloucestershire Council had just started a new programme of care. It had hired on a bunch of new providers. It had kind of just rolled out its, its, new, its new home care package, part of which was Allied Healthcare, looking after about 150 individuals. They'd been given a kind of a three million pound contract or a contract worth three million pounds. And then 11 days after the start of this contract, this story comes out about Allied Care being in financial trouble. Wow. Okay. So let me. So if I got this right, basically, South Gloucestershire Council take out this three million pound contract with Allied Healthcare to look after elderly people in the community, elderly people and vulnerable people, anyone that needs care in the community. So three million pound contract, and then. What, less than two weeks after that, we discover publicly that Allied Healthcare needs help, basically. Wow, okay. So what does that mean? What is this, what's the significance of that for well, people? So my first question was, was, did the council not know this? You know, there would have been a tendering process. There would have been people bidding for these contracts. I assume the council will, you know, at least do some checks into these companies, see how they're doing financially um, before they award the contracts. So that was a question I asked the council. What it means for people is, you know, people are going to be worried hearing about this. There are going to be people receiving care and their families who who might be unsure who would be providing their care in the future. So I thought it's worth looking into. It's worth noting at this point that the council have, have stated that care services won't be disrupted. They, they've been very clear about that, as have Allied, that whatever happens, there will still be care for those people. It will be looked after by somebody. So I went to the council and I said to them, you know, how did this happen? They got back to me and said they had made robust financial checks on Allied. They'd, they'd looked into Allied Healthcare for awarding the contract. And they um, were currently monitoring the visits carried out by Allied's care workers. And if any issues were identified, they would step in and ensure that support was available to people. It makes you wonder how robust these checks really were by the council, because it's all very well carrying out robust checks or what you say or what they say are robust checks. But if they're not digging up things like this, the fact that the company has now announced financial trouble just 11 days after the contract, how robust were those checks? It does raise questions, doesn't it? Right. So there are mechanisms in place that should stop this happening. The CQC, the Care Quality Commission, which looks, it's like Ofsted, but for carers it looks into how well carers are doing gives them a rating do they need improvement are they good it also has a market oversight role so it looks into the financial background of big carers this came into place after southern cross collapsed so the cqc's job is to look into these carers which are too big to replace or hard to replace i think the term is anything that would cause serious trouble if they collapsed and the cqc's job is to make sure that they don't basically 
And if they're looking like they're on the rocks, these companies, the CQC has to tell local authorities that work with them, give them time to put something else in place. So my next story, the one I'm writing at the moment, the one you dragged me away from to come and do this podcast, is uh, me asking basically, how did this happen? There's, there's checks and balances in place, there's a system in place to make sure this doesn't happen. And yet here we have Allied Healthcare, you know, in trouble, less than two weeks after the start of a contract. So I've gone to the CQC, I've gone back to Allied Healthcare, and I've gone back to South Gloucestershire Council, and I've asked them whether or not they feel that Allied's doing a good enough job. Uh, I've asked the CQC if they've been looking into Allied and if they've given any warnings to South Gloucestershire Council, and I've asked Allied whether or not they have sufficient staff. Because after the first story, I received an anonymous phone call. Um, I talked to somebody who had some knowledge of this, and I was I received an email. Uh, this is an email that was sent by South Gloucester's Council. Let me just see if I can find out on my laptop for a second here. Bear with me. Right, okay. This email is from the commissioning project manager at South Gloucester's Council. It's been sent to care providers in the region. It says, Dear all, I am writing to you on behalf of Allied Healthcare. They are currently experiencing a staffing shortage and are looking for care workers from other providers who may be able to support them this weekend with some of their visits. This was sent on the 27th of April. So South Gloucestershire Council effectively have sent out a round-robin email to other care providers that do the same thing as Allied Healthcare, that provide care for vulnerable and elderly people in the community, and they've said, we need some cover, basically. We need substitutes to come in over the weekend to help out. And that is linked. That's what I'm trying to establish at the moment. So we're not entirely sure. As we speak, as we record this podcast, you're still chasing this, as we've mentioned. I'm chasing this right now. What we do know is that Allied Healthcare are in financial problems, and from what this email tells us, it looks like they're having staffing problems as well. So I've got questions in with the council and with Allied about this. The CQC got back to me recently, not 10 minutes before we started recording this, to say basically they do have an oversight role. I'll just read you the email. It's probably easiest. We welcome Allied Healthcare's decision to seek financial restructuring plan, which aims to ensure people who use services, their families and carers, do not suffer disruption to their care needs. I'm glad that Allied Healthcare has informed us that it is writing directly to everyone receiving care from its services and all their staff to advise them of this development, although I appreciate how unsettling this news may be for them. Ensuring the continuity of safe, high-quality and compassionate care when people need it must be the number one priority. Through CQC's market oversight function, we are in close contact with both Allied Healthcare and their key stakeholders and we continue to monitor the situation very carefully. CQC is required to advise local authorities if we believe that services are likely to be disrupted as a result of business failure. We have not issued any such advice to local authorities at this time, but the situation remains under very close review so that we can take timely action if circumstances deteriorate. So at the moment, they are looking at Allied Healthcare closely, but they haven't issued a warning to South Gloucester Council or any other councils in the UK. So what is it about this story that prompted you to chase it then, really? It was a sense of incredulity that a council could give a three million pound contract to a provider, could go bust essentially, without a rescue package, less than two weeks after the start of the contract. It just seems insane that that could even happen, that the council did their checks, but still had no idea that this was going to happen. And I suppose this is a business story, but it's a business story that has a very real impact in the community, isn't it? We're not talking about jobs for once, we're talking about people's care, people being looked after in their home and also jobs as well on top of that. What is the sort of human aspect of this, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that affects people who are very vulnerable, people who need care 24 hours a day, people who are ill or disabled in some way or elderly. 
the council has a legal duty to look after these people and allied healthcare have a duty to fulfill their contract from what i've seen it looks like potentially could not be happening in the future so i think that's why the story is worth chasing so what's the next step for you then in terms of chasing the story what are the next key points for you to try and dig up basically well in about half an hour i should have some emails coming in and that will let me know a bit more the council and allied health will get back to me I'll see what they have to say about staffing shortages, if what they say matches what I've seen in the email. And I take it from there, really. I'll have to put the pieces together, sit down, think about something and, and write it. So we're, we're keen to get to the bottom of what this is all about then? Mm, definitely. And uh, I'll come back next week and let you know how it all yes, turned out. Yes, so we'll get you back on the show and we'll get an update. Thank you, Jim. Mm, all right, no worries. Thank you so much for listening to Inside Bristol Live this week. You can rate, subscribe and download us from Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at IBL Podcast or you can follow me personally at AMB Hack. Also, if you want to follow any of the reporters and follow the fantastic work that they do, we're going to include links to their Twitter accounts in the show notes. Thanks again. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.